This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Shifting over back to the visual arts sphere to talk about an exhibition called Shapes of Knowledge, which is on at the Monash University Museum of Art, MUMMA, out at uh, Monash Caulfield. I'm joined in the studio by senior curator Hannah Matthews. Hannah, good morning. Good morning. Uh, And uh, two of the artists who are involved with the exhibition, collectively known as a centre for everything. I'm joined by Gabrielle DeVitri and Will Foster. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Hello. So... Hannah, we'll start with you as the the curator of this exhibition. The the title, Shapes of Knowledge, kind of gives some kind of indication of what might be explored here. It's the way that art not only provides knowledge for people, but how kind of art itself can be transformed the more we interrogate it. Tell us more. That's a good description. I think, uh, look, most immediately the exhibition responds to the learning environment of the university, of which MAMA is located, Monash University, Um, the largest tertiary institution in Australia, I have found out. It is an exhibition in this way that sort of looks at how learning can be transformed by art. So when I say that, I talk about the ways that artists, the work of artists, the artworks... um, you know, the approaches of creative thinking and language, critical thinking, problem solving, the collaborations, the audiences, the ways that artists kind of work with teaching and learning and knowledge and how that, um, I guess, can kind of meet the other disciplines that we might find within those sort of learning or conventional learning environments, um, how they might meet in those spaces and bring different audiences to those knowledges and bodies of knowledges in different ways and also challenge basically how knowledge is made, perhaps how it is owned or how it is shared. Um, And equally the exhibition is also really looking at how um, art can be transformed by learning. So it's responding to the increase in research-based practices that artists are undertaking. It's also responding to the kind of large number of um, masters and PhD programs that artists are undertaking. And it's also looking at... um, I guess a kind of increase in practice of artists who are using educational models or modes that we're all familiar with, like workshops or lectures, site visits, demonstrations, things like this, in their practices to interrogate knowledge and to introduce us to it in different ways. Will and Gabrielle, as a centre for everything, uh, the work that you're presenting uh, in Shapes of Knowledge is called Lessons in Talking and Listening. Never. That's an old proposal, oh. actually. We didn't get to um, that part to double check. Yeah. But I'll yes. give you the update. Oh, please do. It shows how much See? our ideas change. Yes. <laughs> we, this is education uh, in, in, in life. Um, so it's called Maps of Gratitude, mm-hmm. Cones of Silence and Lumps of Coal. So it's a trilogy. It follows our usual triadic format, which is to bring kind of three things together in one space. And it centres around the uh, relationship between the fossil fuels industry and the arts. So it's a research project that we've undertaken. Um, And the ways in which the fossil fuels industry finds itself in um, not only the arts, but also education and other public spheres um, to try and project a wonderful public image of itself. Tell us a little bit more about this side of things, uh, Will, that notion of effectively is the fossil fuel industry using the arts, uh, kind of in inverted commas, so visual arts, film, theatre, using their sponsorship and their support of the arts as a form of whitewashing? 
Um, or green, in this case, greenwashing. Green yeah. And art washing. Yeah, and art washing <laughs> as well. Um, yes, and I, I guess the the arts institutions also use the money from from those um, from the fossil fuels industry as well. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting project because it encompasses everybody. There's no personal attack because everyone is actually complicit pretty much mm. in this cycle, in this world, in this kind of exchange between big money and art and culture. And I think um, a Centre for Everything in not only the exhibition context but also the events and public programs that they've put around this idea have really um, unpacked that complexity. They bring a lot of research-based material together. It's mapped on the wall. It's also mapped online via a map that anyone can kind of go into and, and add to and kind of really get into the nitty-gritty of these quite um, insidious relationships that are in play. Um, but there's also a very, you know, there's humour in the project as well, which I think is also one of the other great characteristics of a Centre for Everything. Not only do they kind of challenge the binaries or the convention of knowledge and how things relate, but they also kind of introduce humour and hospitality to that process. Mm. Maybe to talk about the Gina Reinhardt-inspired work. Yeah. <laughs> Please tell me it's not a really bad poem written on the side of a boulder. Oh, uh, well, get... <laughs> how did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... Well, we've... Up, we've up... That poem has been updated. Mm, yeah, someone's replaced the poem. So I don't know if you know about the poem, but it's at Morley Galleria in WA, um, in, in Perth, I guess. Um, and it's a large, um, is it three, how many tonnes? I think it's 30 tonne. 30 tonne boulder of iron ore, which has the poem inscribed by Gina Reinhardt on the side of it because it was gifted to, to the mall there. Um, so, yeah, there's, um, that poem's actually been re- replaced um, so you can see the replacement of that poem. And the poem's called Our Future, um, and there is a different future that you can see at the gallery, um, um, which has tried to stick to the kind of um, same framework of the the same design and kind of word count, roughly, of the original poem, so that um, it's quite a subtle replacement. But if you were to spend time reading it when you're in Perth, if you get a chance to visit it, then you will see that it's been changed. I was in Perth only a week oh, ago, but sadly I did not seek out the well, boulder. You, you, you <laughs> didn't visit this wonderful piece of public artwork that the mining industry has yeah. has kind of um, gifted to the sadly, public? Sadly, it wasn't on my itinerary. <laughs> I'd read the poem when I, when it was kind of first presented mm. and I was thinking, Gina Reinhardt may be many things, but an <laughs> yeah. insightful poetic writer she is not. Not so much. But well, you should, Then if you missed it in Morley Galleria, you should come out to yeah. Mama because there is... The Centre for Everything sort of um, booted copy mm. of of um, our future. The so ode there's a rubbing the of both versions of the plaque, okay. which you can see. That's kind of the documentation of the of the process and a yeah. version of the object itself. Yeah, yeah. Now the title of the project that the two of you are doing uh, out at Mummet, the fact that it's called Maps of Gratitude, Cones of Silence, and Lumps of Coal. Let's break that down a little bit. <laughs> Lumps of Coal we've seen paraded in Parliament by our now Prime Minister. He was not Prime Minister at the time, but he was kind of waving coal around proudly. Cones of Silence, obviously referencing the fact that there is a lot that goes unsaid or untalked about or unacknowledged when it comes to accepting sponsorship. I was on uh, the board of Melbourne Fringe at one point uh, when we were considering getting sponsorship from Rio Tinto, and I'm happy to say I was the one who did the research and said, here are all the the reprehensible things Rio Tinto is doing in terms of not cleaning up its mining activity, say, in Papua New Guinea and so forth. I don't think 
as uh, an, uh, a board for, uh, responsible for an arts organisation that we can accept this kind of money. Mm. The Maps of Gratitude, let's talk about that. If people go to the, uh, the, the website www.acentreforeverything.com under projects, you can see what looks like one of those kind of like police crime wall maps <laughs> with strings connecting guilty parties or, or so forth. Talk to us a, a little bit about this project. So the title Maps of Gratitude comes from the um, comes from Malcolm Turnbull's statement in 2014 in response to the um, Biennale boycott saying that the artists who were boycotting showed vicious ingratitude. And so this that kind of references the follow-through to kind of continue to examine the way in which the art world works and the um, economic flows that it participates in and what it um, what it endorses kind of under the under the radar. Um, so this map, as Hannah was saying, is actually plastered on the wall. So it's a map that shows the connections between the fossil fuels industry and the arts, of which there are thousands. So we've looked at specific art institutions, the major performing arts, the festivals and biennales, the contemporary art organisations, the um, state galleries and um, some of the major university galleries. We couldn't especially go without examining our own participation in the exhibition at the same time. So we've looked at all the board members, all the sponsors and all the partners of those exhibition of those spaces and looked at whether they have connections to the fossil fuels industry, not just direct connections, say, to BHP or Rio Tinto or Mitsui, but then also the kind of broader parts of that industry, the legal firms that defend those mining companies, the accounting firms that help them develop strategy and deliver value, those kinds of things. So we've really looked at that complex web um, and it's not just... um, like available in the gallery, but you can go online through um, a Centre for Everything's website under projects and click through to the interactive map. So you can really pick out the ways that um, that those uh, relationships work, I guess. Hannah, tell us a little bit more about some of the other artists and collectives who are represented in the exhibition. Um, so there are eight projects, including a Centre for Everything, and those projects are drawn from Australia, Asia, Africa and Europe. Um, one of them is a project by Kim Maxwell, who's also a Melbourne-based artist, and she has been working with the kids out at Dandenong Primary School on a project that began actually early last year. They've been looking at the practices of collecting, so what we do in the institution of the museum and what they do during play like so during lunchtime out in the yard, what sort of objects they, coll- they collect and what that, the stories that they tell about themselves. And they're presenting a play that they have developed with Kim uh, this Saturday afternoon, 23rd of Feb at 2pm out at Mama. It's being performed out in the courtyard. It's called Objects Are a Limbic System, Embrace Their Logic. And it's been scripted by the kids. It's been performed by the kids. They've made their own sets. They've made their own costumes. And it's a very... Um, it's a magical, chaotic, finely tuned life performance. Um, it's not uh, linear. Let's not say let's not say it's theatre, but it's certainly a live performance work that really captures their world and the objects that they play in that space. So that's one of the really exciting projects. The other one we have. I guess to kind of cover the, the sort of range of um, projects is by Lucas Eileen, who's in Wollongong, and he's been working with an 86-year-old man called Alan Yeomans with a prototype for a carbon still that Alan has designed. And um, they're looking at the viability of that still in a future carbon economy as a, basically a, 
machine that farmers can use to measure the level of carbon sequestration they're doing. So they'll be paid for the carbon that they're pulling down from the atmosphere while the rest of us are paying for our emissions. And um, it just gives a sense, I suppose, of, you know, Kim's been working with six, seven, eight-year-olds. Lucas has been working with an 86-year-old. Um, this phrase, lifelong learning, while it has been monetized and marketized, unfortunately, um, is true. Clichés come from the best places. And... Um, it's a lively space. It's an exhibition. We have visitors, visiting artists coming through up until April 13. There is round tables, there are workshops, there is the theatre piece happening this weekend. And for the last few days of the show, we've got the Pan-African Space Station coming from Cape Town. Uh, and they're a group, they're a radio program, basically, who will be setting up in the gallery. And they will be programming three days of reflections about Africa by the African diaspora here in Melbourne. Great. I have to say, amongst the artists and, uh, and the collectors involved, I'm really intrigued by Asia Art Archive, oh, yes. who uh, are asking the question, how do the activities of art schools impact the history of art? It's a pertinent question. It's yeah. A, it's a really intriguing one because kind of uh, what we teach obviously shapes our awareness of history, but then how are we reshaping history through what we teach as well? There's a, a lot of challenging questions to ask, and I guess a, a question for... Will and, and Gabrielle as a centre for everything. By the with the the project that you're doing with this exhibition, maps of gratitude, cones of silence, and lumps of coal. To what extent do you feel like you are educating yourselves versus challenging yourselves? Are you challenging yourselves and considering that there may be hypocrisy on your uh, uh, involved in anybody in the art world if you are trying to move away from being supported by the fossil fuel industry while simultaneously uh, exhibiting in an institution that may benefit from that industry. Talk to us about that conundrum that is perhaps at the, the heart of what you're doing. Well, the conundrum goes deeper because it. Um, while we were doing this research project um, with the two um, research um, assistants that we were working with, there was a moment where we all realised that we all have family connections to mining and mining money and that actually in Australia it's really hard to escape that industry. Um, and I think that the questions that we ask of the work and of the institutions that we're interrogating are also questions that we ask of ourselves. Um, yeah. Yeah, but you can't choose your family, can you, Gab? No. <laughs> but you can interrogate them. Yes, over absolutely. So I think that we are really trying to challenge ourselves and challenge the institutions that we work with for that information to be activated, to um, to go to the, the curators and the directors of the institutions that are named for that to become a conversation with the board members, for those associations to become unacceptable so that we don't act as an extension of these in this industry's office, basically. We don't act as their kind of corporate social responsibility opportunity. <laughs> Shapes of Knowledge is on at the Monash University Museum of Art, Mama at Monash University, Caulfield. Hannah, Will and Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. Thank you.
have a powerhouse duo here. I have Laura Milky, who is uh, a gun of an independent producer with her company, Milky. And I have publicist Eleanor Howlett, whose sassy red PR is uh, a bit of a gun publicity company for Melbourne's independent artists. They're here to talk. Uh, well, we're going to talk about two kind of two things, really. We're talking about the fact that, Laura, you're presenting the the workshop Producing Like a Pro as part of Gasworks Cabaret Project, which Eleanor is the publicist for. But it's also an opportunity for the two of you to share some tips with the many independent artists who listen to Triple R uh, to tell them how to do better at what they do. So, welcome. Hello. Thanks, Thank Richard. You. That was got... a slightly rambling intro, sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. We've, we've got a lot to say, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Um, well, well, I mean, I guess uh, in terms of – do you want me to talk about the workshop? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's uh, I'm doing the workshop called Producing Like a Pro, but it's basically about the foundations of what you need to know as an independent producer or as a self-producing artist. Um, I've been uh, producing work independently for – just on 20 years or so. Um, And I guess, uh, you know, no workshop can give you the golden ticket of uh, this is how you, you know, have a sellout crowd. But I guess uh, from uh, what, what I'm basically going to be going through is the foundations of what you need to do when you produce a show. So getting your budget underway and knowing what it means and how to manage it, uh, looking at marketing, looking at uh, how to track tickets properly, because every show, every festival, every season is going to be different for every artist. Mm. Um, But the foundations, I feel, still stay the same. And in terms of publicity and because uh, not every independent artist can afford to hire a, a publicist Fair enough, yeah. um, and sometimes I know artists just go oh, I'll just create a Facebook event and invite my friends <laughs> that'll be fine and then they freak out when five people turn up yeah. because you can only rely on your friends and family for so long um, to break this down Eleanor what are some of the simple mistakes that people make when they're trying to publicize their own show well, I think there is, a, and Laura and I were just having a discussion about this, I think there, there does tend to be a bit of a idea at times with younger independent artists or just independent companies that if you build it, they will come, you know. Um, and it is, I, I think a big thing is asking if, if you, you're time poor and financially, you know, not in a position to hire a publicist, to really ask who are your audience for this show and where are they? Like, are they online? Demographically, where are they? And if you're going to kind of push online promotions or postcards, you know, postcards and posters, I should say, go directly to where they are. I mean, instead of kind of spraying it across Melbourne and hoping for the best because it's trying to catch, you know, a few fish with a massive net instead of a lot of fish with a smaller net. I mean, that's, that's I suppose, somewhere to go in terms of looking at audience and getting people in. And also, I mean, like, the ladies, Laura and Jane, um, who are working on or who are the producers for the Gasworks Cabaret Project, they've done a very sort of clever thing and they were approached by Gasworks where this project is about engaging the local community and they did that with the Bright Festival too that they had done um, about looking at the city of Port Phillip and the people around the venue and bringing them in so it's also about bringing in new audiences and not creating art in a vacuum for as you say like friends and family in the same audience every single time and you know hoping they'll help you meet budget. (laughs) 
And Laura, in terms of Milky, I mean, you produce shows, you mentor shows, you run workshops around the country as well. Um, what are some of the the fundamental, most important things that you can teach? Uh, that uh, an independent producer or a self-producing artist? Uh, well, as I said, the first one is is really in budget, to know uh, how much your show is going to cost and how much you're potentially, you know, going to lose or, or make. And I don't think there's uh, enough focus on that. Um, so should people, for example, be thinking uh, in terms of ticket sales, the number of tickets they're going to sell, the number of comps they're going to give away and literally map out a room and go, right, one third sold, one third given away, one third probably empty unless I can bring in more people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also about, it's about knowing your numbers, not only on the budget, but knowing how many people, is, as you said, you need to bring in. Um, and none of that is actually hard. It's actually a bit of a formula, really. Uh, but I speak with so many artists that, and I get it, you know, they don't want to look at their box office reports or they're just like, or they're seeing zeros and no tickets sold for so long. Mm-hmm. But if you do that, uh, as soon as you've registered for that show or that festival, that theatre, you've got a bit of leeway to actually put things into action. So whether that's through um, publicity or whether that's through Facebook ads or whether that's through other marketing uh, to be able to make sure that you know, you've got the audience there as opposed to just putting your hands over your eyes and going, I don't want to know. Uh, that's kind of the, the one of the keys to it. And I mean, I would also add to that too, in terms of, you know, as I mentioned before, demographic and who your target audience is, also how money they are and your ticket pricing and looking, you know, if you're in your festival, potentially, if all the other shows have a $15, 20 ticket, maybe a $45 one isn't the way to go, you know? Yep. So I think ticket pricing, I feel these days is a kind of a really big thing. Um, and a lot of, I find, well, I see sometimes that a lot of shows maybe aren't getting the audiences they want because they've just outpriced their 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 audience like and that's a really easy audience. one to fix too yeah. you just i mean you really you look over the past probably six to 12 months of what that venue or what that festival has done also what your other peers are doing as well like who else in your genre mm, and, and other artists are kind of charging you know if you're doing comedy and you know will and Anderson, for example, is maybe charging $45 and you're a newbie and you're charging 38 Probably not going to work. <laughs> Might want to rent Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to throw a scenario at you. Let's, let's do some role-playing. Um, you're an artist uh, from Melbourne and you're, you're doing a show in Perth say, at Fringe World, which has just finished. Um, I know from talking to producers and artists in Perth that they tear their hair out at the fact that Perth audiences have a tradition that they don't book, they just turn up on the night. How do you deal with that as a producer and as a publicist? What's the strategy to encourage people to book in advance rather than just buy at the box office on the night? There's a a heap of different ways. Mm. And again, it starts from, I think what you were saying in terms of uh, the research of what your, who your audience is. I stand by that there is enough audience for every show uh, because every show topic will have some kind of niche in it. It might be about carers. It might be about riding a bicycle. It might be about circus pe- I don't know, you know. Mm. So you research that audience and try to find there. There will always be the general festival, comedy, cabaret going audience. But if you can really hook into that niche audience, mm. you will get a better return on investment. And so I think it, it starts 
early. I think I think artists are leaving it too late. And I get it, especially when they're self-producing. There's a lot to do. Like I know how much work is involved just as a producer, yeah. let alone having to write the bloody show and, <laughs> and perform it, you know. So I appreciate that their time is slammed. But if they can project manage it, I guess, a little bit um, longer term and just do just carve out a little bit every day to, to work towards it, even if it doesn't work, at least they know that they've put in that effort to, to try and get it to that yeah, point. Yeah, that's marketing in itself. I mean, and th- there's a lot of hand-holding, like willing hand-holding in what we do. I mean, and in this day and age, people don't pre-book. Like, for example, I mean, I saw a tweet of yours this morning, Richard, which, as I mentioned before, made me, propelled me to buy a ticket for a show. Um because we're, I, f- I feel like we're a really immediate society. Like we want, the, if we're going to purchase something, we want it straight away. We want to see a show, we're going to see it straight away. So pre-booking, whilst it is, you know, still done, um, I don't think like artists should, like they should cons- cons- like be consistent with their marketing, push on, continue with it, even if pre- pre-booking isn't that great. Um, because people do tend to buy on the day or just before. So it just, I, I don't mean, I worked on a box office for many years before I, you know, branched off and... Same. Yeah, exactly. And so even now when I have clients going, no, it's people come like, just take a deep breath and remember that word of mouth is also a great thing once the show or the event's up. So The yeah. booking late thing is is consistent through, like, I mean, I produce shows nationally oh, yeah. and in, and internationally and that's consistent and I think a lot of it does have to do with, with social media. Mm. The... Dementing thing is when you're producing a show is that you've got to keep marketing and keep oh, spending yeah. money <laughs> like there's no one coming and then you look at the report, you know, the next day and go, where the hell were the 50 people that knocked yeah. <laughs> I'm glad they did, but it's also, it's part of it as well. It's that kind of... It's the gift that keeps yeah. on giving. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of uh, people rushing things at the last minute as well, would that be fair to say that uh, pe- uh, people approaching publicists sometimes do that as well? Yes. They're like... I've got a comedy festival show opening in a couple of weeks. Can you help me kind of do some PR for it? That's a conversation they should have had, what, six months ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, that, you know, that pains my soul because, look, the the beauty of my business is I started it, I work with the artists that I want to work with. And and sometimes um, I get people coming to me very late in the game because you do need a minimum of eight weeks for for me to do my best as a publicist. And in all good conscience, and I've said this in emails, I cannot take your money in all good conscience because I can't do the best for you that I would want to do. And you may as well literally go out into the street and just flick that cash into the gutter. <laughs> you know, especially with 500 plus shows. Yeah, people need to be people need to be prepared and they need to understand that if you're going to be in show business, then you need to um, also be very good at the business side of show business. If you want to succeed, you want to be successful in whatever that means to you. If that pains your soul, Laura, what pains yours in, in terms of uh, kind of self-producers making mistakes? Oh, I mean, there's. I think it's not so much mistakes. I think it's a case of they don't know what they don't know. Um, and I think when, when a self-producing artist or even a producer that starts out, I mean, there is no. I mean, yes, I'm running a workshop, but I'm not the be-all and end-all of, of mm. producing. You know, but there's no kind of guidelines. A lot of good producing is guesswork and intuition. You do just make stuff up as you go along, and the more you do it, the more you learn. So I think it's um, from you know if. You, it's, it's them asking the questions and, and, and understanding and reviewing those seasons that don't go so well as yeah. to what they could have done better 
next time. Yeah, and look, when I said it pains my soul, it pains me because I, you know, I you genuinely do care. Want to, I genuinely yeah. care, and I, you know, I, I want to help those artists, and to see them, then I just kind of. I, you know, probably have a very pessimistic, you know, view of how they're going to fare then in the festival if they haven't kind of started addressing this stuff a lot earlier. So, yeah, that's where that it comes from, a, you know, a well-intentioned place. <laughs> if you would like to learn more about both my guests, Laura Milky's company is Milky, M-I-L-K-E, so milky.com.au. Uh, there's video tutorials and... There's heaps of resources on there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Laura is running the workshop Producing Like a Pro as part of the Gasworks Cabaret Project, uh, which uh, the Gasworks Cabaret Project is a, uh, a range of cabaret artists performing at Gasworks Arts Park in Graham Street, Albert Park, from the 19th of February till the 2nd of March. When's the actual workshop? Uh, it's the 28th. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a professional publicist and I know that it's the 28th at 6.30pm. That's yeah. correct. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you can book by going to gasworks.org.au if you would like to learn more about Eleanor Howlett's business as a publicist. Sassy Red PR is sassyred.com.au. And I have to say that when independent artists from interstate contact me as they sometimes do saying can you suggest a good publicist in Melbourne to help out the independent arts I, Sassy Red is one of I my go to recommendations. You are so good and you know what I'm, I'm going to start charging a commission. Oh you should <laughs> I, I find and I always recommend I have a little pool I mean I don't do a, I don't do competitive with this because I think the more people talking about and promoting and working with independent artists the better because there we have an amazing like uh, body of talent there so why not share the share the love yeah there's some very fine arts publicists in melbourne mm. who know their job and for example the publicists who contact me going well you won't be interested in this but what about this other client yeah. i think that's kind of yeah. your alley that it's it, it's helpful to have a, a good relationship with a good publicist if you're an artist and looking to get on a radio program into a newspaper, kind of, or you even pitch yourself. Or, or you could, or I think, kind of, is one of the most hotly kind of in demand spots. The I don't know the live cross for the weather or something, because that oh, seems yes, to be something that of, yeah. a lot of publicists I know are pushing now. Oh, we got our client onto the the six kind of six a.m. <laughs> kind of weather cross. It it is the hot spot. Yeah. You're no one until you've had a client on there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so uh, those websites again, uh, sassyred.com.au to check out Sassy Red PR and milky, M-I-L-K-E dot com dot A-U to learn more about Milky and uh, everything from artists' boot camps to uh, de- artist development. So 